The luxury industry is more or less run by insecurity. There's a lot of that that goes on. That's why a lot of people buy things. They're insecure about their status. They're insecure about their sex appeal. They're insecure about their wealth. And so they buy objects which attempt to demonstrate it in order to make themselves feel better. It's also a big part on the other side. Insecurity about our brand is cool. Our ambassadors are are popular. You know, we're the sexiest brand. We're the most in-demand brand. There's so much insecurity which fuels a lot of decision-making. When it comes to sponsorships, there's an enormous amount of insecurity. What are people going to think about us? if we sponsor this thing. Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. We have both David and Ariel with us this week. How are you, gentlemen? Hey guys, doing well. Sitting here in my 90 degree Fahrenheit office. <laughs> it's uh, nice and warm around the world. I hear from friends in Germany that it's warm and here in LA it's warm. And so it's nice to be together and, and sweating with our colleagues around the planet. You knew that it was freezing in Scotland today, didn't you? Is it really freezing? Yeah, it's absolutely Baltic over here. There is literally <laughs> oh, a heat wave going on throughout the world and I am sitting in a freezing cold office with like a puffer jacket on because it's so cold. So sorry. Yeah, this morning yeah yeah sorry sorry not sorry <laughs> because of that like because i'll just remind you you've got a tax bill to pay that'll depress you suitably seeing as i'm depressed because of the weather yeah but i can go outside and feel better <laughs> and you also have taxes it is true we do have taxes yeah, yeah. <laughs> david do you have taxes oh, that's the only thing we have here <laughs> <laughs> <That's it. laughs> there is no redeeming feature of living in hungary at all it's just literally death and taxes oh the times we live in yeah yeah so so yeah that's fine <laughs> i don't want to talk about it <laughs> it just means less money for watches that's the problem exactly yeah everything's just less money for watches there's this thing in the uk whereby whenever there's and i don't know what the international version of this is whenever there's like a comparison of scale so let's say there's been a big fire in the rainforest it's always compared to the national unit of measurement in the uk which is the size of wales so they will say an area <laughs> three times the size of wales is burning in australia or a forest fire in northern california is half the size of wales oh that wales i thought yeah, you were as meant like to- no, like it's no. like five blue whales stacked off of them. I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure what that length is, but I actually know more about the the mammals than the region of whales. I actually don't know how big whales is, other than there's a lot of Welsh people. Well, it's big. I, what would be interesting would be to know how many blue whales you could fit in the country of Wales. Somebody needs to do that figure for us and send us in a voicemail message. But I don't know if there's a, a comparison. I don't know if in Hungary everybody compares it to. It's the size of Bulgaria or in America, <laughs> you compare it's, it's the size of Montana. I'm not sure what happens, but you eventually huh. get into this hobby such that everything is compared to how many watches could you have bought for the same price? Well, we hear a lot of that. It's always like, that's like 10 Rolex Submariners, you know, like we, we, we say that a lot. This week it's 12 Rolex Submariners. <laughs> well, on the note of this sort of, you know, economic restriction of watch purchases, what I found over the years, because, you know, given the time I've been in this, I've seen a lot of different economic situations up and down and and everything in between. And the desire for watches doesn't wane. So like when the economy's bad, people aren't like, yeah, screw watches. They can afford less of anything. They want luxury watches more. So what, what changes isn't demand. It's just affordability. Like it's the same person will be buying Omega as might be buying Seiko when, when things are down, but they're still reading about what they want. And I just find it interesting 
the the desire and the hobby it continues to maintain pretty well even though what people are spending is a little bit different we actually had a, a voicemail message i don't know if anyone can associate with this but i'll just play it quickly hi rick and ariel it's alan from southport earlier on this week i received my zelos comet salmon watch which i totally forgotten that i bought I'm sure I've bought something else around that time as well, and I can't for the life of me remember what that is either. So I just wanted to ask you or the listeners whether you'd ever bought something and were surprised when it turned up because you'd totally forgotten about it. That's from Alan, so the rumour monger. Can anyone associate with any watch purchases that they either made and then forgot they'd make because of such a long waiting list? Or... Stuff you discover in that man drawer or person drawer that's in, in your office that you never look in and then you go and you go, oh, I'd forgotten I had that. I certainly have that. The forgot I'd bought that a long time ago and haven't seen it for ages. I want to know about more about this man drawer. I've never even like defined something as being a man drawer. Is there a special set of objects that goes in this man drawer? Where is the man oh, drawer located? Yeah, it's it's always got a... T- Do you know what strepsils are? Uh, What? Strepsils. Strepsils? Is that like a yeah. medicine? It is. So it's a cough medicine. It's like a cough sweet. And oh. back in the day, you used to buy them in a small tin. And my father's man drawer, always, there's always a man drawer. It's probably politically incorrect to call it a man drawer. Everybody has one of these drawers, <laughs> which has all the stuff in it that you can't quite figure out where else you would put it other than in the man drawer. And in the man drawer, there would always be a tin of strepsils. And in that tin of strepsils would normally be... 13 amp fuses or little <laughs> micro screwdrivers or something like that. You must have a drawer like that in your house. Arrow. David, please tell me you have a drawer in your house that has the kind of random size battery or the 14 sets of keys that you've still got from all the flats you've lived in in your life. Uh, literally every drawer in my home is like that. It's... That's what I was going to say. <laughs> David said what I was going to say. I have so many of those. <laughs> yeah. So I should consider myself organized. I yes. even have one of these. Exactly. Congrats. You, you did it. You figured it out. You figured out how to put all of your, your entire male life in one drawer. <laughs> I, I'll tell my wife that she should be proud of me now rather than disappointed. 100%. <laughs> so yeah, no no watch purchases that you've made and then completely forgotten about? It happens. I've, it's happened to me, but I think the I, I like it because for me, it's like an unexpected thing. Like unexpected good news is like, oh, this thing you've been waiting for for a long time finally comes because it's it's I, I like forgetting because there's some people who just pine about it and they're like emailing them. When's my watch arriving? When's my watch arriving? And I'm telling you the second they get it, they don't even care anymore. But when you forget about it, you get to enjoy it all over again, like a new discovery. So I, I that's what I prefer. What's the longest either of you have waited for a watch that you've bought? A couple of years. What, what was it? Can you remember? No. I just remember there's certain things like production delay after production delay after production delay. It's like, here it is, the final thing. And sometimes I remember it doesn't even look like the original <laughs> thing. Like, like, don't even go back to the original renders. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a funny part of it too david what's the longest you've ever waited well not much but i i don't like waiting too much i, I like forgetting so i'll second what ariel said but i don't I, I don't like waiting too much because i get just frustrated i'm like where, where is it where the hell is it that's that's my that's the sensation i'm getting <laughs> and they start slamming his hand on the table like be where is my watch you did a great interview this week on superlative about Hublot with the is it president of North America? Yeah, John Francois, I guess is yeah, he's the he's he's the guy running the show here in the US. Full of standard trope stories about JCB. 
does kind of lead us on a little bit, maybe in a bit of the reverse direction than I expected, but Hublot got their big PR this week because in the UK, or particularly in England, it was the European Championships of Football, and Hublot are the sponsors. And one of the main things I think that came out of that interview was just how revolutionary, but seemingly daft, the sponsorship of football was by Hublot in that nobody else had taken up the challenge of sponsoring the world's biggest sport until Hublot decided to go in all guns blazing into the sport and it appears to have paid great dividends for them. Why had nobody picked up the world's biggest sport? Yeah, that's a good question and I discussed this a lot with uh, Jean-Claude Biver himself. He talked about it a number of years ago. I think we have to go back to this idea that the luxury industry is more or less run by insecurity. There's a lot of that that goes on. That's why a lot of people buy things, they're insecure about their status, they're insecure about their sex appeal, they're insecure about their wealth. And so they buy objects which attempt to demonstrate it in order to make themselves feel better. This is sort of painted in the light favorable to the consumer. But again, insecurity is a big part of it. It's also a big part on the other side. Insecurity about our brand is cool. Our ambassadors are are popular. You know, we're the sexiest brand. We're the most in-demand brand. There's so much insecurity which fuels a lot of decision-making when it comes to sponsorships. There's an enormous amount of insecurity. What are people going to think about us if we sponsor this thing? For a long time, there was this idea that you shouldn't sponsor an event that didn't directly reach the people you were selling to. And for better or worse, there's a lot of worse on this, brands would try to stick to these sort of like events where they felt that most of the audience members and the participants had a lot of money. So things like horse racing or auto racing or all these expensive types of things. Boats, boats is perfect. Golf, you know, they're just like, oh, most people that are into boats have money. Well, that, that's true. And so for a long time, this sort of exclusionary practice of marketing was the norm. And then you had a little bit more of a data approach to things. And, you know, there's this idea that there's these giant untapped markets uh, that that you're not appealing to. And, you know, I think Biver was who likes marketing was going around and saying, oh, this is taken, this is taken, this is taken. What's not taken? Wait a minute. There's this giant world of sports, you know, football, soccer, whatever that isn't isn't taken? Why not? And then he asks around and they're like, oh, well, that doesn't reach the right people. It's so, you know, it's so common. It's so this. And he's like, that's stupid. There's a ton of people out there that are watching it. And so a lot of it had to do with that sort of, it hadn't been validated by the Rolexes of the world. What Jean-Claude Biver did, which wasn't, wasn't that revolutionary, if you think about it, was just decide to invest in a sport that just didn't have another watch brand sponsor that had a huge number of eyeballs. And that was, you know, primarily targeted towards, you know, a lot of demographics, especially outside of, of Europe that are considered minority populations. And the traditional watch and luxury marketing industry just didn't really have those people on the radar. So I'm not saying there's anything particular special about what Hublot did, but it was Jean-Claude's ability not to be so much influenced by those insecurities that his colleagues and other brands had. It would be interesting to know what the cost per eyeball is for Hublot versus a Rolex or a Longines, etc., I'll bet you they get an enormously good deal in terms of just the demographic they actually do hit in sponsoring football. And it brings watch purchasing to not normal people, but to non-watch geeks. Like people who do not know watches and don't listen to podcasts or read a blog to watch how very dare they. It's for another episode, but at some point I'll tell you the story about Manchester United when they transitioned from Ublo to Bulova. 
And I remember that was a very interesting conversation. Yeah. So there's a lot to be said about it. It's an interesting yeah. topic. Also, Jean-Claude's a big Manchester United fan, which was really why he sponsored them, so he could get the best seats in the house. Maybe. When Manchester United used to be a good team, unlike today. We have an article that you penned, Ariel, about watch sizes. This was a topic of conversation last week and has been for a couple of weeks because of Breitling. But I'm just going to play a quick voicemail from Jim Dolaris. Probably not how you pronounce his surname because he's Swedish. And this is about a particular watch. Hi, Rick and Ariel. Jim here, listener from Sweden. Listen, uh, about your size discussion in the last episode when Rick said that we don't need more Breitlings in 46mm. This got me thinking about my dad, who has been a Breitling guy all my life. For the last 10 years or so, his daily go-to watch is a stainless steel Super Avenger chronograph in 48mm. That bad boy is thick, long and big. And I'm not talking about my dad then, I'm talking about the watch. The watch is a beast. But I have to say, it doesn't even look big on him. It wears quite perfect. But on the other hand, you should see him trying on my Black Bay 58, or as he would say, that little lady's watch. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for a great show. Okay, so Jim's father wears a 48mm Breitling. There is no doubt that is a huge watch, and referring to his Black Bay as a lady's watch... It is probably a bit extreme, but Ariel, take us through your logic in your penned article this week, which is really about should watch brands produce watches in all sizes in the same way, I suppose, that a shoe brand, you know, Nike produces the Air Jordan or whatever it is in 14 different sizes. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I wrote this article a while ago. And I have a lot of, you know, different essays about this. These, you know, these are about being a watch collector and some of the observations you make about the things that irritate people and the things that people are passionate about. And you ask yourself, can there be a solution to this or at least a way of thinking about it? And for a long time, I've seen and not really participated in, but overseen so many arguments about watch sizes. What's the best size? What size a particular watch should be in? What size people should be making more watches in? Whether you should wear a watch this size or not. And it's always seemed to me so abundantly silly because it's such a manifestation of the sort of selfishness at play where someone is really just thinking about themselves. And they're forgetting that there's different anatomy, different preferences out there. And I thought to myself, why does a brand have to narrow the appeal of a popular model down to just one size preference. And it's not uncommon that brands do different sizes. You know, for many years, Rolex has made the Date Trust in a whole variety of sizes and Chanel with their J12 has made it in a variety of sizes. So this does exist in the space, but I think there needs to be more and more of a discussion about it. And the idea is that brands can can take a popular watch that has a good design that, you know, appeals to multiple people and then say to themselves, why just commit to one size. Why well, say that if you want the Submariner, it's got to be 40 millimeters wide. That's it. I mean, they say 41 now. It's really more or less the same as the one before, but that that's the only option. If you want to go bigger, you know, Rolex has a couple of other options for you, but why not just say if you like this design, you can you can get the size that meets your proportions and, and your your preferences and your lifestyle. That this argument about what the best you know size is, is really only relevant for yourself. I know the best size for me. David knows the best size for him. You know the best size for you, Rick. And everyone knows the best size for them. So brands 
could make more money and put a little bit more stock into these designs that they put so much effort into by simply making them in a lot more sizes. And, and I think that now, a few months after I actually wrote this, you're starting to see a lot of it. We talked about, you know, the Tissot PRX, which has the 35 and 40 millimeter wide model. And, and again, I think brands are still thinking about, you know, this is the men's model and this is the women's model. And there's also been this push lately, you know, unisex. And I think that all of this coming together just says, you know, a watch like the PRX, for example, can appeal to multiple people depending on the size. So don't market it. You know, you can market it for men and women. I hate the idea of marketing as unisex because that means it's not good for anyone. But market it for men and women and have multiple sizes so that people can choose whatever they want. That seems to be a very efficient way of putting a lot of investment behind a design while maximizing returns because you're selling to the most number of people. So in, in a nutshell, that's what it's about. I mean, Breitling are obviously the most recent to produce a new range of watches in multiple sizes. Uh, do we genuinely think this is a market trend? I mean, you said about the PRX. David, do you see other or hear on the grapevine other watch brands starting to look at producing famous watches or, or new runs of watches in multiple sizes? Well, I think the, an interesting point to add to that is that, you know, I've, I've seen some posts online where... Um, you know, journalists were complaining that, oh, you know, like big brands are so lazy because, you know, just to produce a ladies watch, they make a smaller version of the same watch and that's unacceptable. So, so which one is it going to be? Right. I'm, I'm not sure that the, the, the proposed solution is to re-engineer or, you know, just relaunch a watch in a different size. It probably could and should be redesigned because not everything serves the same purpose. Uh, sorry, I said, or, or looks great in the same size. It's not like you can shrink you know whatever design and make it still look acceptable or look good on anybody right so um i, I think that's 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 a more important point of discussion but uh i'm not sure where where some of the bigger brands are going we, we've seen omega uh, the likes of omega and others launch literally hundreds of hundreds of different skus uh, model variations in different sizes and colors etc just carpet bombing basically the market i'm not sure that's a good solution either Good. So, yeah, if you've got an opinion over watch sizes or models you would like to see in a different size, then do email the show, podcasts, with an S on the end, at a blog to watch.com. Send us in a voice memo or just some text and we will read it out. Also, do check out the Superlative podcast. And if you're listening to this show on the Spending Time channel, then please do also subscribe to it directly on a blog to watch weekly there will be new stuff coming specifically to the spending time channel so you wouldn't want to miss out that so if it just so happens that you're subscribed to a blog to watch weekly and superlative then there is actually a third channel so do go and check that out there's a load of back catalogue there right let's talk about some watches the American watch company Shinola which is based in Detroit and the American motor company Lincoln which is based in Detroit have continue to work together. They made a car, like a, a one-off version of the Aviator car for Lincoln. And now they have a couple of watches that are, you know, uh, Lincoln branded Shinolas. Um, there's a couple of models. They're not, you know, radically different than, you know, everything that Shinola has done. These are some special color versions that, you know, I like that there's an automatic version that sort of elegantly has the Lincoln graphical logo on it, some nice kind of like black and gold tones. I think this is one of the nicer executions of a car watch because it isn't sort of so overtly car and it is sort of a nice intersection of two companies and 
in the same city that want to help one another. I think that's sort of what's nice is that the, these companies, they want to support one another. Lincoln wants to add what hit can. Shinola wants to add what it can. And so very rarely have I seen two companies, uh, watch and car that truly want to make the most out of the relationship. Usually it's the car company trying more than the watch company or vice versa. And this is sort of an interesting, you know, dual effort. So I, I like it, you know, is it, you know, Shinola isn't so far, isn't, you know, the official watchmaker of Lincoln in the way that, you know, Ubla was with, with Ferrari and now Richard Milas and things like that. It's a little bit more subtle, which I kind of like, you don't really know where it's going. Lincoln is not a brand that most Europeans are familiar with in terms of seeing the cars every day. Certainly in the UK, I assume the same as where you are, David. Where does Lincoln fit in the world of cars? What's it equivalent to? Is it the Ford of cars? Is it the Jaguar? Is it the Mercedes? What kind of brand is Lincoln? Is this a high-end aspirational brand or kind of middle-of-the-road everyday brand? Lincoln is owned by Ford and it's their luxury brand. Right. Um, it is Ford's analog to Cadillac, which is, you know, part of General Motors. So I'd say that it probably performs a little bit under Cadillac in terms of overall sales. I think that they have slightly less vehicles. For many years, Lincoln was known as sort of a high-end fleet vehicle or a limousine vehicle. And so you'd see, you know, the town car, for example, which they don't mm. currently make right now, was like, that was the driver's car. If like you're being picked up by a driver, chances are it's a town car. They're rebranding right now and in terms of like the vehicles. They only have SUVs right now for the most part. They haven't even come out with a new sedan in a while. So it's it's an interesting time to be Lincoln. But like I said, it is it, you know, it is American luxury brand. American luxury brands tend to be more affordably priced than European luxury brands. And depending on the model, either a little bit more aggressively priced than the Japanese one or a little bit more for branding purposes there's two there's a chronograph which is quartz which you can kind of tell is quartz because of the positioning of the registers it looks i have to say it looks a bit like a kind of i don't know fashion watch where the registers are positioned it's obviously a similar quartz movement that many less well appreciated brands from the watch community would exist but this three-hander think it's got screwed on wire lugs it certainly looks like they're screwed on because there are screws but whether they're for show or whether it's actually screwed on i don't know but the three-hander is actually quite an attractive looking watch 39 and a half mil by the looks of it i quite like that and because i'm not familiar with the brands lincoln and i'm actually not that familiar with shinola the fact that the logo is on there from the watch brand i don't find offensive because i don't realize that that's the car logo it just looks like another logo from from Shinola or that represents something else. So I do quite like this. The three-hander is actually more expensive than the chronograph because it's automatic. Is it a Solita movement? I assume that's in it. Yeah, Solita SW201 powering the Runwell Automatic. You got to understand that Shinola has a series of stores in America. So a lot of mainstream consumers would learn about Shinola, not because they're watch lovers, because they'll be in a shopping district and they'll see a oh, Shinola right, okay. store. So there's a lot of, to talk about this. It goes deep. The founder, Shinola, is one of the co-founders of uh, the Fossil Group. There's there's a lot of stories behind it. I actually don't know what their international distribution is. To answer your question about the lugs, they're designed to look like wire-on ones. Uh, the screws that you're seeing are part of how the case back is affixed. 
and there's a traditional sort of spring spring bar that that, that allows you to take the straps off as as you might expect on uh, most modern watches you will get fossil stores in the uk uh, i think you'll find there will be a limited run of watches and they're mainly fossil watches i can't think as to whether i've actually ever seen shinola watches for sale in a fossil store no 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 no, no 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 they're they're not friendly brands they're competitors oh right they're competitors now right okay yeah yeah even though ah, it was, right, it was right. co-founded by that's right yes because fossil now owns zodiac right yes got you yeah, so these they're they're not buddies. They're they're. <laughs> <laughs> Does Shinola as a watch brand then is it the same as like Swatch in that there's a Shinola store on any number of high streets in the United not States? not as many, but yes, and they have other things, leather goods and right. and stuff like that. For a long time, Shinola wasn't really that interesting for the enthusiast community, mainly because most of their watches were quartz and they were. I wouldn't call them particularly affordably priced for what you're getting. They were they were nice, but you know, if you're looking for a nice quartz watch and you're a watch enthusiast, you were familiar with a lot of the other options. Mm -hmm. So I think what's interesting is what they're doing now and how they're changing. And the brand is changing and you're getting more enthusiast quality stuff. We talked about their their yacht timer watch that we we the sort of like their version of the Monaco that was like a thirty five hundred dollar watch. So we're starting to see more enthusiast great things from there. It's hard to say exactly what it is that was the uh the mackinac yacht watch uh just remembering that from july 16th so we're watching the brand now we're seeing where they're going now that you mentioned that they're involved in leather goods you can actually see that the photographs of the strap uh, the leather strap look particularly impressive it does look like a very well put together watch for 1300 i mean 1300 for a, a salita movement some really pretty design that's not a bad wee package i have to say that's that's priced to price to compete against quite a few micro brands that will have nowhere close to the support that presumably if you're saying Shinola have a big network uh, presumably the support they can offer for warranties etc is is pretty rock solid in comparison so yeah go check out the article at a blog to watch.com okay we have a mystery guest this week so mystery guest who are you and where are you from uh, my name is Richard, uh, currently from Brighton, or, or at least uh, recording from Brighton. Currently from Brighton, that's like the old, uh, what was that TV show, I'm Richard from Brighton? What was the dating show called with Silla Black? That was... Uh, blind Date, yes, very Blind Date-esque. I'm Richard and I'm from Brighton. Well, I mean, this 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 gives off the kind of the, the Paddy McGuinness vibes. I felt like I was coming down in a in a portal, you know, reveal yourself, so... Yeah, all sorts of different different dating show uh, shows in terms of the reveal. Yes, you're from Studio Underdog. I believe you have more than one role within the organisation. Uh, I do. Yeah, I'm the well, I'm the founder, the director, the coffee boy, the designer. You know, everything, all all of the above. But that's that comes part and parcel of being a, a one man brand. And as I understand it, you won an award recently. <laughs> I did. I've uh, very fortunately won uh, Employee of the Month. That was yeah a decision made by the the entire board of directors, uh, who are all, also me. So uh, congratulations. Is there a rule against winning it two months in a row? <laughs> probably not. Probably not. We'll, we'll see what next month has to offer. Anyway, all that aside, what are you here to talk to us about? So uh, I'm here to talk about uh, the the latest release from Studio Underdog, uh, which is the Strawberries and Cream, which is a new new colorway, uh, another playful twist on uh, on a kind of 
a vintage style chronograph uh, that, that's launching. Well, it's launching later today, actually. We're recording on the on the 9th and this goes live in just about five hours time. So, yeah, exciting day today. Excellent. And unlike most uh, watches that have this kind of launch, yours is slightly different in that it launches in five hours time. But it's then it's not just a case that it's only going to be available for five minutes after the <laughs> uh, five hours pass. For sure, I'm kind of I'm learning as I as I build this brand. What 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 I typically have done in the past, or the the launches that have been in the past, is there's been a certain sort of stock upload depending on how much I have in the works, and, and typically uh, it's all it's all sold out very quickly, which is obviously obviously wonderful. But I understand that it leaves customers some customers frustrated if they've been waiting, if they've been excited for the launch. I'm an enthusiast myself, so uh, you know I, I've been through that plenty of times. So this time I'm working on a, a slightly different launch plan where it's a pre-order period. So there's a week from the 9th up until the 16th. The order book is open. Anyone that places a, an order is is guaranteed a watch, and hopefully that means more enthusiasts can can get their hands on the watch if they want it. And in a way, it probably also doesn't encourage flippers to to make that purchase as well because it's uh, a little bit more accessible. And so I have received from you the sample set of some of your existing range. I have here the, well, I don't know quite the names are, but there's basically the blue one, the watermelon one, and the slightly green one. I think the green one's the mint chop chip. Mint chop chip, exactly. That's the that's the, the, the slightly green one with the little chocolate chip hour markers. Yes. Um, as a playful touch and then the the blues the the desert sky as well so that's all part of the the core collection and the watermelon there was the one that I guess put me on the map really that's the one that people tend to recognize the brand via why just now are we doing strawberries and cream well it I guess it makes sense in terms of the lineup I feel like there's not many watch brands that could introduce a, a strawberries and cream colorway and people go yeah that makes sense <laughs> but I think that's different for the studio underdog. The The way it came about was I did uh, recently did a charity project uh, with Fratello watches. Never heard of them. Never heard of them. Never heard of them. Never heard of them. <laughs> so that was uh, an aubergine or eggplant themed uh, watch uh, where all profits were, were donated. So that launch went live at the start of April. And one of the first people to comment was a guy called Miguel, Miguel Sebra who's a watch and tennis journalist. And he said, you know, this is the perfect Wimbledon watch, you know, purple and green ties into uh, ties into the tennis there. And I jokingly replied saying, oh, strawberries and cream coming soon. And from that moment on, he was, he was calling me and texting me really enthusiastic about this concept. So I went ahead and made some renders. It was, you know, they looked brilliant. I, I thought they looked a, a lot of fun. Went ahead and, and made a sample and, and sent it to him to, to check out and enjoy whilst watching some of the tennis. And it's gone from there, really. It was just at that time a, a prototype and people seemed to, to really love it. So uh, thought I'd uh, put it into production. Now, we've already touched on a little bit of the where. Presumably it's all via your website, which is what? Yep, so the website's uh, underdog.com. The O in dog is, is a zero. It's part of uh, part of the branding. Do you regret doing that now in hindsight, that every sentence you say you have to say? It's like people that put underscores in their Instagram address talking about you, David. I mean, did it seem like a good idea at the time? And now you're like, every time I have to say the same thing. 
Do you know what? <laughs> it's it's not too bad, but I, I know exactly where you're coming from. I wonder how many people do end up on, on underdog.com, which is, I'm sure that's some sort of insurance service or something, <laughs> but I'm sure, I'm sure they'll quickly... Uh, quickly know they're in the wrong place but no I that you know the whole I guess part of the branding is is the kind of the not not caring too much you know there's all sorts of rules when it comes to branding all sorts of do's and don'ts and I very much kind of said after a while trying to develop a name that fit within the the guidelines I kind of said sod it you know I'm, I'm just gonna take the polar opposite approach even if it makes my life more difficult so yeah no regrets great name <laughs> and then finally how much does this cost how much how much of our cash are we gonna need to part with for one of these strawberries and creams? Is it as is it as inexpensive as the strawberries and creams from Wimbledon? Actually, which is more expensive? <laughs> a, a round of strawberries and cream from Wimbledon or this watch? I guess it depends how many strawberries you get, but uh yeah, this is probably a touch more on the expensive side, but but hopefully a touch more enjoyable and and longer lasting. That's what you gotta uh that's what you've got to think about. So no, this is £575 uh, and that comes with uh, two strap options. Miguel is a bit of a strapaholic, so it was only right that this came on uh, a beige leather strap uh, as well as um, a Milanese mesh strap as well. Excellent. Well, I look forward to seeing how the launch goes uh, and thank you very much for joining us. Have a great rest of the day. Goodbye. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Rick. So that was Richard, the general dog's body of Studio Underdog. They have revealed the Strawberries and Cream watch this week. I have sitting with me their kind of press pack, which has actually has everything in it except this watch because it's that watch is doing the rounds separately elsewhere. But Studio Underdog appears to have tapped into this zeitgeist for colour, but has done it at a, an incredibly competitive package. Okay, it's using a movement that I suppose historically wouldn't have been everybody's favourite. But actually, I've handed these sample watches to members of my family and other people who are not that big watch geeks. And see when they turn it over and see this movement in the back, even though we know it's not, it's not, you're not looking at A. Lang and Zona in the back here. Every, to, without a fail, every single person has an intake of breath just looking the chronograph movement on the back of this so as an effort to get folk engaged with watches this is a this is a home run especially for 500 quid or whatever this is going to be this this new one uh, what experience have you guys had of studio underdog have you had the opportunity to handle any of their watches I don't think I've seen the watches yet. It's still a relatively new brand. Remember, this is the Kickstarter brand. And I think that we've covered some of their stuff before, for sure. We have seen a number of brands launch on Kickstarter over the years. A great number of them use the blog to watch services to you know, announce their, their products. And so we've been sort of privy to seeing just so, so many of these over the years. And I think what's interesting is, is which ones you know, are ultimately do well and which ones don't. And this was this was kind of a cool package, and I like this one, and I was glad that they were successful. Um, we're actually you know very proud of the fact that we're, we're able to get a lot of visibility to some of these these Kickstarter projects because a lot of them do cool stuff. And so when they make their second, third, fourth watch, then you start to see that they've sort of succeeded, right? Like the Kickstarter thing just gets them started as, as it is. It's a Kickstarter, but it's not ultimately going to get them anywhere. And so the brands that come out with the subsequent products are the ones that we're, you know, proud of and like to push and that is that is what Studio Underdog has done. You know, to understand the name Studio Underdog and and the design and and 
all those little things. It's definitely an enthusiast watch. And so, you know, we just talked about the Shinola, which I guess could satisfy enthusiasts, but as a mainstream watch, this type of product is completely different. It is, you know, very much for enthusiasts. The mainstream would have a lot of difficulty just understanding all the little nuances here, which is fine. And so I, I, I like stuff like this. I encourage this type of entrepreneurial behavior. But I don't know what the next five to 10 years is going to be like for these companies. I don't know how easily they're going to be able to get stuff made, movements. I don't know how affordable it's going to be. So I still I, I continue to say that we exist in a uh, sort of a form of a golden era right now for these sort of like boutique productions that are relatively uh, inexpensive to make and interesting. Um, and so I encourage people to sort of like have fun while they can, because I don't think stuff like this is going to be available in 10 years. Yeah, it's interesting. The ones that succeed and the ones that fail, sometimes it's really difficult to tell why such and such micro brand launch succeeds. And then another one, which appears to be as good quality watch fails, but this one has very much succeeded. It will be interesting to see what happens next, as you suggest. Richard is very much focused on different colorways of the same design of watch with some uh, small iterations in between. But it'll be interesting to see what his next trick is. David, have you come across these? No, I have not. Not yet, at least. So I look forward to handling one of these in person. Yeah, I mean, they are very nice. And as I say, the reaction, I handed one to a former executive of Richemont. Uh, who was absolutely stunned. Uh, I, I I did the how much do you think this costs game, mm. and he was, well, maybe that just reflects a former executive of Richemont that he priced it four times the amount that it actually was. Oh, that's just common practice. Uh, maybe that's just the Swiss for you. You know, no, 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 no. Let's be honest. The easiest people in the world to impress with reality are Richemont executives, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, good stuff i'm quite looking forward to seeing one of these on the metal bracelet i think the only thing i'm not a fa- i mean it's a perfectly good strap it's made by a very well-known guy the strap tailor but i think this watch will work particularly well on the the shark mesh type bracelet so look forward to seeing that but go and check out the strawberries and cream uh, ariel did you not have some sort of interaction with miguel in terms of this yeah so coincidentally uh miguel siabra who was the uh the person that came up with this color palette with studio underdog for this you know this particular watch we've been talking about he's he's a watch writer he's been doing so since the 1990s someone i've known for the entirety of my career so we did a superlative podcast uh, earlier today quite coincidentally and uh he's very proud of this you know i've done my projects i will continue to more of them what I think what's interesting about he and I both is we really want to be part of the creative process. We have no interest in becoming a salesperson, but we have a lot to say in regard to that creative process because we've seen successful watches for you know for him decades now. And so why not tap him for ideas on things like that? Why does it have to be studio underdog? I mean, if anyone has earned the right to tell Cartier what to do, it's some guy who's been writing about luxury watches for 30 years. You know what I mean? I suppose it then technically makes us a collaboration, but go and check out the article on a blog to watch from Studio Underdog. We have a sponsored post this week that I'd actually like to speak about on the show. And this is the Bangalore Watch Company debuting the Mac 1 Synchro. And this is to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the, I'm going to I'm gonna butcher this pronunciation, but I think it's probably the Suriakin. It sounds like a Bond villain. Surikirian aerobatic team. Uh, please send us in your actual pronunciations to podcast at blogtowatch.com. We'll play them back next week. Bangalore Watch Company, what's the story 
Ariel with the Bangalore Watch Company? Basically, a gentleman who's Indian moved back to his native India in Bangalore and was a watch lover and decided that there wasn't uh, enough endemic watchmaking in the sort of enthusiast realm. Of course, you know, India has massive Titan company that makes watches and things like that. India is a very large market, but here's someone who had more of an international perspective and liked watches and felt that he could make a watch that appealed to, to other people like him. I've been with him really since the beginning, the very first of their watches through a series of sub subsequent models. They've decidedly stayed sort of boutique. And, and I like brands like this that they, they don't want to grow bigger than than more than a couple of per people team. They want to sort of focus on having fun, making nice watches, making their customers happy. There is a big market for these types of, you know, higher quality, more refined, you know, smaller independent brands. And so that's really the background. It's, it's someone that, you know, really want to do their best job, you know, got, got, got into watches in the right way as an enthusiast and then took that knowledge and tried to say, how can I do something a little bit more for my market? So these particular ones are one of a series of watches related to aviation and military aviation in India. And he was saying that no one else was celebrating these things. So similar how we were talking about Jean-Claude Biver identifying that no one is you know, participating in the world of football. Um, here you have a, a different entrepreneur for a different type of brand identifying that there is an emotional market which isn't being tapped by other watch brands. And he decided to do it himself. And, and uh, he's been successful. And it's been, you know, several years now that this brand has been operating and continuing to have more models. So again, another one of these success stories. Yeah, I'm a big fan of their cover drive watch, which is a watch with a bezel that you can use for scoring uh, cricket. overs in cricket. cricket. So that's yeah. a really clever watch. I do like this watch. I mean, I don't have any particular strong opinions over the design. It's it's a nice watch. It's was it nineteen hundred dollars? It feels it's not. It doesn't feel expensive. It's not a micro brand just looking to pump these out at three or four hundred dollars. It's a properly solidly made watch, and there's only one hundred and twenty five of these going. Uh, this is for those of you that are familiar with the Red Arrows, which is the kind of United Kingdom aerobatic display team. I think basically this is the Indian version of that display team. They certainly use the same planes and they use the same number of planes, which is nine. Whereas I think most aerobatic teams in the world, other than the Red Arrows and these guys, use less than nine planes. But there you go. That You've come at me in the comment section if I'm wrong. India as a market for watches. The impression I get is watch brands major focus on China. But China, communist country, regime, can lock it down at a moment's notice. Okay, billion-odd people. India, billion-odd people. Democracy. A lot of them speak English. A good infrastructure in terms of a legal system, etc., etc. Why are watch brands not more invested in expanding their sales by tackling the Indian market rather than focusing on China? Was it in fact the was it in fact the corruption that existed in China way back, which is what the watch guys were interested in because they knew they could sell loads of watches to folk that were giving away watches as bribes to things. <laughs> yeah, I mean that look, that's that's definitely a big part of it. Going back to the turn of the century around the late nineties and early two thousands, there was this idea of the BRIC countries, B R I C which included, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. So India and China were definitely two of these emerging economies that everyone was excited about. More people going into middle class, a lot of wealth creation, and all the luxury brands wanted to invest in the BRIC countries, and they did. And, <laughs> you know, none of those BRIC dreams seemed to come out 
the way that they, they had hoped. India was very promising and, and it still is, but there's a lot of issues with India. One, there's no sort of like one way of going to the country. There's a lot of different parts of it. You can't just sort of go in one way. You have to sort of have a, a full country strategy. There's a lot of different languages you need to master. So you can't have advertising and, and just sort of one language. You can't just be in one city. You'd have to be in many, many cities. There's a lot of complicated tax implications. So India you know, wants companies that come in and do business there to invest in certain ways and do business in certain ways that are, you know, in the best interest they feel of the Indian market. And a lot of luxury brands um, don't like to do that. Uh, China proved to eventually have all those headaches and all those hurdles, but there was a society that brand executives felt would be uh, more easy to sway and that growth could be more immediate. India was a little bit more of a mature market when it came to luxury because a lot of the the people who were already buying luxury, you know, knew luxury very well and, and you know, and would, would barter and, you know, want good prices like any, you know, any consumer you'd expect want. And China was a little bit more about, you know, oh, look what a big shot I am spending all this money on watches. So there, there's cultural differences. There's tax differences. There's the language, you know, China uh, try to make it. There's one language. Okay, you're in. One ad can pretty much work anywhere there. Uh, but that same type of thing wouldn't really work uh, within India. And you have to choose, you know, different partners everywhere. So it was really just the fact that to truly participate in the Indian market, the level of investment and strategy was just higher than most watch brands wanted to deal with. But it is looking now that India is a good place potentially to invest in, again, depending on how the economy is going to go there. But India is relatively well positioned to have a strong luxury market, definitely more so than Russia and Brazil in the next uh, five to 10 years. And it looks like probably better than than China, at least from an ease of doing business perspective. So I think we're going to see more investment in India versus less. Either of you ever been to India? No, I, I would love to go. Um, I have a lot of great relations with people from India or have heritage from there. Definitely on my list. Same here. I would love to go someday. I haven't been, but Ariel's analysis sounds, uh, sounds legit on, on India and the Indian watch markets when compared to what's going on in China. But I agree with you, Rick, that there's tremendous potential there. Are there luxury events for watch brands in India? You know, would it not make sense for the likes of Dubai Watch Week, who are not that far away from, from India, to be having something on the west coast of India? They, there are some events. I know because some of my colleagues in India would tell me about going to them. I, I couldn't tell you the names of them, and I don't know exactly how often they happen. But it there is a luxury watch community you know, in India, retailers, some media. So it's not non-existent. It's just doesn't have a huge level of, of brand participation, things like that. And I and again, there's a lot of business and economic reasons why they can't just canvas the country in brand boutiques. It's probably a good thing. But, you know, I, I think that they would have to have a little bit more of a, an outlook on what the market is looking like there before they would invest a lot. And, and that's, again, probably going to come in the next two or three years. Well, we do have a significant listenership in India. So if you are listening to this from there, why don't you send us a message? Tell us just what's going on in the watch world where you are. Well, the last year or so, I've I've been seeing so many kids around here in Budapest wearing NASA branded uh, shirts. I, I think they purchased them at H and M, and and suddenly everyone became uh, an apparent NASA scientist <laughs> or something like that. It looked like everyone was working at NASA casually, which is kind of funny. And now you can wear a watch that has the same color as a NASA uniform or astronaut gear or something like that. 
it's kind of cool. It's very orange. And uh, yeah, basically G-Shock was asking, hey, do you want an orange G-Shock? Maybe not. How about we throw a Naza in there? And then, okay, everyone wants it now. So that that's what's happening. It's a limited edition, which is a bit of a bummer. <laughs> uh, but it's priced at 170 US dollars. So, so there you have it. Yeah, this is very cool. This would go down particularly well in one section of the Glasgow population, a bright orange NASA watch. But I'll leave that for those that know the Glasgow scene to comment on further. Ariel, <laughs> this is specifically related to a store in Los Angeles, which I assume you know. Yeah, so I want to comment on what David said about NASA. Now, uh, several years ago, NASA made a very specific marketing decision to allow its brand to for free to be available for all different types of companies, uh, fashion and everything like that. And so there, it, it wasn't like everyone could get the license, but if you applied you could ostensibly get the right to use this for free. And that was a wonderful thing because you could, you know, you could, you could tap into that. And, and like David said, there was all these kids wearing it because, you know, people have a positive association with it. And apparently everybody wants a U.S. government job. Um, <laughs> yeah. But what we're seeing here is an interesting tendency to have something popular in culture. This is the third or so Casio G-Shock NASA branded one. And, and these have all sold out. I think I have the first or second one, which is white. Orange is, relates to some of the flight suits, right? So it wasn't yeah. that just randomly chose this, but there is, you know, again, what are they trying to do? They're trying to go associate with the colors that people think about. So there's these flight suits in orange for Halloween costumes and everything else. This is a particularly fun one that has the astronaut in the back. And I think it's a wonderful thing that space travel and being an astronaut and things related to astronomy uh, or, or aerospace vehicles is is in vogue right now. Oh, yeah. uh, I think it's wonderful for kids. It's it's a great inspiration. There's a lot of good that can come out of it. So, you know, I, I'd say this is overall a positive thing. Yeah, there's some you know cheesy collaborations here or there. But at, at the end of the day, I think that this is a smart thing. And, and, and this is limited specifically because it's trying to be exclusive, right? Like Na NASA is a, is a strong name and G-Shock could sell a lot of them. But by making it limited, they create these sort of FOMO products that help push some of the larger collections. And, and, and you know, th that's what I really like about Casio. There's there's products you can buy every single day, no problem. This exact watch in different colors with different branding you can buy right now. But those special cool ones, those get you excited. And, and, I, and, and Casio is so far had an okay cadence. They haven't gone so crazy with the, the branded products uh, as some other companies, but they need to maintain a certain level of discipline to sort of not overdo it, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I love the look of this. I, I mean, who doesn't like an orange, a bright orange anything, let alone a bright orange watch? So yeah, I'd quite like to see one of these. Are you part I'm... of that uh, Glasgow community you're talking about? Because I have no, no <laughs> idea what you're referring to at all, to be honest. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, no, I couldn't uh, admit one way or other through fear of completely cancelling this show. Oh, I guess. Uh, but no, I am. What what you would normally say when asked, and people will know, is no, I support Partick Thistle. So, because oh, you, you kind of walked into that one, right? I did kind of <laughs> like walk into that with big size yeah. 12s. Yeah. I, I notice also that the case that the G Shock comes in is blue, which will also appeal to a certain demographic. But there we have it. So, yeah, tell us about the guy that's involved in this, because this store in LA appears to be quite focused on these kind of. Yeah, so there's, there's a bigger story here, of course, about this gentleman. But I think what's important to say is there's a, sto a new store. Uh, it just opened up last week here in Los Angeles called Augustine. It's in Santa Monica. And it's a store that sells some fashion goods and some bags and sunglasses. But they are um, an official uh, G-Shock uh, retailer. And they sell 
a high to low end. You can get the the highest end MRGs there, and and they're an official partner of Casio. They're not just one retailer, but they're you know they work part of the distribution there. So this is a new and important place in Los Angeles and and ostensibly around the world uh, to get these watches. And they they also have made it clear that they want to make it possible to buy some of these harder to get ones. And so they'll make certain dates available where they can buy it. They want to democratize the process. They feel that they have a slightly more fair system for the U.S. to release some of these you know, harder to get limited editions and maybe even Casio themselves does. And we support that. We want to make sure that people have a good experience to get the watches. And I haven't visited the store yet. I'm going to do it next week. It's it's Augustine in LA and it's maybe the new premier place in, in Los Angeles to get your, your high-end G-Shock watches. Well, I go and check out the article on a blog to watch.com. We're coming to the end of the show. Quick news flash. Before the show started, we were all talking about what was going on. And I can happy to announce that uh, child number one, I don't know why I call her child number because she's the only child, has just got her exam results and is going to university. Woo! So uh, is all round. So well done. What have you guys oh. got to look forward to this coming week? Well, my, my son graduated from preschool. So same accomplishment, right? No tests Excellent. or anything. Excellent. Amazing. <laughs> So your 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 girls going to college, my kids going to kindergarten. Excellent. And was there a big graduation ceremony? Oh yeah. I, when did that become a thing? I don't know. That you graduated. <laughs> you graduated from preschool or primary school because it's a thing. I'm sure we inherited that from you lot uh, over there. But yeah, you, every time you move on a school, it used. To... It's for the adults. Yeah, it's for the adults for sure. I mean, all that would normally happen when you left school is the final day of school, you get to play Monopoly rather than do work, and then the following session you'd just be in a different class and that would be there'd be no celebration but now it's all parties and proms for seven-year-olds and all the rest of it david what have you graduated from this week oh my goodness uh this week i, I just saw the the video that ariel sent so in my mind i was graduating from kindergarten i was going <laughs> Pre preschool going into kindergarten oh, okay preschool okay that's what it's called okay is there any particular watch news we're looking forward to any releases what are you both working on Still the summer. Uh, I, I, I feel like it's it's still a slow summer. Not much left of it, but there's still a little bit to go on to Geneva Watch Days, which is at the very end of August. Yes, indeed. So hopefully we'll be doing some coverage from that. Yeah, that's the big thing. Yeah, so I've got some Christopher Wards coming today. Something something a bit secret is on its way. Mm. And uh, the Oracles are on their way. And the studio underdogs are looking great. So yeah, that's it from us. So... All of you have a great week. Oh, shout out to Ryan Reynolds because we haven't done that for a wee while. It's important to keep him engaged uh, in the process. <laughs> but other than that, have a great week, everybody. Cheerio. Bye, everyone, and bye, Ryan. Bye, everyone. Come on, a message to Ryan as well, surely, David. Catch you next week, Ryan. <laughs>